The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Still getting used to the video thing. Like, yeah, I can't hunch if you like Larry King with my shoulders all the way up. I got a very important story for you today. I don't know why that's that's not Larry King. Who did Larry King marry? Uh, Larry Queen. Larry Queen. (laughs) I don't know why her name's Larry, but you know. One day we'll do the Larry King, Larry (laughs) Queen story. Uh, Well, since we don't often have much else to talk about, we did go to the movies. We did. We got to see the Fablemans. It was different than I thought, but it was beautiful. Oh, we yeah. talked about it for like two hours <laughs> after still, it was over. Still coming up with oh, things man. to say about it. The performances were so, so good. And yeah. I, just, I just can't recommend it enough. Loved it. Seriously. Fantastic. I, I thought it was going to be way more like uh, Baby Spielberg learns to love movies. Yeah. And it was that, but it was way more about the Fablemans. Like it was a story about mm-hmm. a family. Yeah. And, uh, and a fascinating one. Oh, my God. And to tie it into Ridiculous Romance, you know, it's about a couple yeah. it's about love and romance. And it's about like all the ways that relationships work, what kind different kinds of love. And yeah. I yeah. don't know. It's just it was just really color me surprised. A good Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? This guy's going places. It had to happen sometime. I'm telling you. <laughs> I think this Spielberg guy, he's got it. He's got it. He's really he's good got at it. making we'll, we'll, guys. We'll see more from him. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Mark my words. Check it out. Loved it. Yep. You heard it here first on Ridiculous <laughs> Romance. <laughs> Go see The Fablemans, directed by Steven Spielberg, in theaters or on demand now. Wow. That was a good commercial. I'll, I'll be expecting my bag of money in the mail, Mr. Spielberg, Ooh, or at least a, a part in your next film. Oh, now that would be. You're welcome. 
one more experience in our IRL media consuming lives that relates into ridiculous romance. And we're, I'm, we're not going to talk about it. I promise we won't give any details. No. But this week's The Last of Us episode. <sighs> you guys. Just if you like ridiculous romance. Oh, my God. Well, go watch it right now. Just this one episode. If you don't want to watch yeah. everything, it's fine. Yeah, it's I've kind seen a lot of, a of people episode. be like, I don't like the zombies. I don't want to watch a gore episode. This That's is just okay. watch this one. It's its own little movie and it's just Stunning. wonderful. Beautiful. Just wonderful. Loved it. Cried. Yep. In the best way. Yeah. Wonderful. Yep. Such a cool way to like, I don't know, just have a cool moment in an apocalypse, you know, setting. Yeah. Isn't that what we're all looking for? I mean, a cool more and more these during days. The apocalypse. <laughs> I'm so sick of the apocalypse being full of lame moments. <laughs> yeah, where's the cool moments of the apocalypse? We're I, just chilling. <laughs> I gotta say, in recent years, you know, what's what's the superpower you'd want? Right, is always a big question. Mm-hmm. Oh, I want to fly. I want super strength. Uh, immortality. Whatever. I want click. I want the Adam Sandler remote. Oh. Where I can just fast forward. <laughs> huh. Because I so often am like, this storyline is stupid and I want it to be over. <laughs> Zip. Not even world events sometimes, just like personal stuff. Like, oh, I've got a cold, you know? Oh, right on. Fast forward. Mm-hmm. I don't, this is a dumb chapter and I don't feel like reading it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I think that a lot about days of my life sometimes where I'm like, stupid, don't like it. <laughs> Skip to the, I, I know it's not going to, it's not, it's inconsequential in the long run. So can we just, damn, can we just move forward? <laughs> no, what wasn't boring was that I recently got to attend the Orlando Winter Mini Fringe mm. in January. Um, the Orlando Fringe is huge and they do like kind of a smaller curated fringe in the wintertime. Right. And we're talking about the Fringe Festival, a performing arts festival. Diana runs the Atlanta Fringe. That's right. Uh, for you out there who might not be regular listeners. That's so true. Thank you. I yeah. do talk about fringe like everybody knows exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about at all times. But um, <laughs> but yeah, it was really cool. They had like I, I don't know something like 16 shows or something, 20 shows yeah. going on over the course of the weekend, and I got to see a really great solo show called The Real Black Swan from this performer named Les Kirkendall, who is a really, really fantastic performer. If you want to look him up, he's got a podcast called A Lifetime of Hallmark, where he talks about Lifetime and Hallmark movies. <laughs> it's just great. He's fantastic in every way. And the show was all about how the first drag queen was a former slave. Oh. And of course, I was like, well, what did you say? So I had to like hop on the internet and learn everything I could about it. Most of it was in his show, (laughs) of course, but I was like, let me look it up. And I thought it would make a great episode for our show. So I'm going to go ahead and say that this was suggested by Les Kirkendall (laughs) without his knowledge. Yeah, thanks, Les. Um, (laughs) He didn't realize he was suggesting it, but he did. So let's hear all about William Dorsey Swan, who is the former enslaved man who would go on to throw some fabulous underground drag balls and become the first gay rights activist in America. Fantastic. Let's go. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Before we settle down and commit to this story, let's talk about drag with a quick fling with history. Let's go! 
men wearing women's clothes goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Sure. During those times, the term female impersonator was used. And it most often applied to mostly straight men who were playing the parts of women on stage. Oh, right. Because in ancient Greece and all the way up to 1661, women were not allowed to act professionally on stage. So men had to play all the ladies' roles because right. you still wanted to have romances and you still wanted, you know, you needed sure. a nurse or a mom or whatever. But dressing up and playing pretend, that's a man's job. That's what men do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the idea of masculinity has changed so much. <laughs> it really just keeps changing. Centuries, <laughs> what it is and how it's expressed. So, yeah, I mean, that's partly what makes Shakespeare's cross-dressing play so funny. Mm-hmm. He's writing it, at least, already knowing that the men will be dressed as women. So right. then he puts the women dressed as men and there all these shenanigans occur. But right. it's like an extra layer of funny because you already know that cross-dressing is already happening. So, like, I'm Bruce and I'm playing Viola mm. and, uh, and I got to wear this big, long wig and be like, oh, I'm Viola. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to meet you. Uh, Hortensio, maybe? I can't remember. Twelfth night. And, but then she's got to dress up as, I'm sorry, Benvolio. I'm making this up. Mm-hmm. And she's got to wear a man's wig on top of that. That's right. And be like, oh, I'm playing a woman, playing a man. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, you can see why it's extra funny to people at that time. <laughs> All that to say, this was extremely common. It was a yeah. very normalized thing to do. And plenty of men had very successful careers specializing in female performance. Right. One actor in the early 1900s, his name was Julian L. Tinge, and he was such a hit that he performed as a female part for King William VII before he abdicated, oh. and he was given a white bulldog as a like a gift oh, wow. from the king. Beats an Oscar. Which is like, I guess so, unless you weren't prepared to take care of a white bulldog, but <laughs> he's like, oh, I gotta like get this on a steamship now. <laughs> Back to America. But yeah, Julian was so worried about people thinking that he was gay that he would like put on this kind of super masculine persona in his oh, regular life okay. to be like, I'm very different from uh-huh. the lady I play on stage. And I mean, I understand it because apparently the first time he was discovered wearing women's clothes, his father beat the shit out of him. Oh, jeez. So I can see why he was scared. But it really, it's like un- until cross-dressing or gender bending became associated with being queer, which wasn't until like the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really considered to be a gay thing. In fact, in 1885, Brigham Morris Young, who was the son of the second president of the Church of Latter-day Saints, sang on stage as Madame Paterini. And in fact, he once performed as Madame Paterini at the birthday party for the fifth president of the Church of Latter-day Saints, Lorenzo Snow, which kind of suggests they were all into it. So, yeah, just men in drag, especially white men in drag, pretty common throughout the centuries. Mm -hmm. But we also can't talk about the history of drag without bringing up that some people say that black drag is rooted in racist blackface performance from the early 1900s. Now, once women were allowed to get on stage, female impersonation sharply declined. Like, we don't need you to do that anymore. We've got women. But then minstrel and vaudeville shows came along, and there it became a trope in comedy to put a man in women's clothing. Mm. Right? So you had white men performing in blackface, playing black female tropes. The argument being that drag, for black people specifically, is rooted in racist blackface performance Mm -hmm. is based on this because it was it was basically these men were already 
wearing blackface. Yeah. So, of course, they're going to just include women, you know, black women as part of their mocking and right. their shitty comedy. Mm-hmm. And so they were also wearing drag. But those were white men, white men wearing blackface and yeah. playing black women. Um, so in terms of like black people themselves doing drag, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I agree that that's completely accurate, I guess. As in like the idea that black men were emasculated deliberately by being made to dress in drag. Yeah. Or like that they didn't want to do it. Right. You know, that there was no black performer out there who wanted to do it. It was just this thing they were forced to do mm. to humiliate themselves. Mm-hmm. That's kind of some of the rhetoric I've I've seen. Interesting. And I don't know how, you know, widely <laughs> that opinion is held right. by anybody. Um, but it was just something that really stuck in my craw because I was like, <laughs> I was like, is that true? And I was really trying to find something to back it up. And that's kind of the only thing I can see is that blackface performers were playing black women in drag. And that's not to say that there is not plenty of racism to complain about within drag ballroom culture, because the reason that black performers struck out on their own to do drag competitions was because all female impersonation and drag competitions were interracial frequently, but the judges were always white. Mm. So they never let the black performers win anything. Naturally. So they were like, well, we'll go off and make our own thing. And that ended up being the more popular version and the more, yeah. you know, what became the modern version of drag, Dragon Ballroom culture. <laughs> go figure. Uh, black people <laughs> took a piece of culture and said, we're going to go off and do our own version of this. And it was way better and more fun. And everybody preferred <laughs> thousand that. times more cool. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise. I mean, for real. <laughs> and furthermore, as Dragon Ballroom culture got more popular and more mainstream in the 1960s and 70s, White people then re-co-opted, oh, kind of like kind of went back in. They co-opted the dances, the moves, the attitude to make a bunch of money yeah. without actually supporting any of the people that they stole from. This sounds like a unique thing that's only happened this one time this in one this time, particular instance. We really biffed it. <laughs> we totally biffed it. White people fortunately never did that again. Oh. No, if you look it up, there's plenty of discourse about, for example, Jenny Livingston, who directed the 1990 film Paris is Burning. Mm-hmm. She had promised that the queens that she uh, interviewed for that film would get like a portion of the proceeds of the film. They never got anything. Mm. Uh, Madonna's song Vogue is another good example. She kind of took the moves and everything from it, but she didn't really do much for the community, Mm. I suppose. And so that's kind of a good example of that kind of exploitation. They're the two examples that come up the most. Okay. As early as 1867, Harlem's Hamilton Lodge was holding an annual Odd Fellows Ball, and it had both black and white performers compete for prizes for the best female impersonator. Okay. And the terms drag and drag queen did more than likely, as best as we can tell, originate with William Dorsey Swan, who is uh, our subject today. Mm-hmm. Now, William was born into slavery in Maryland around 1858. He was the fifth eldest of 13 siblings. Channing Gerard Joseph, who's the main reason that we know anything about William Swan at all, says in his paper for the Oxford African-American Studies Center that William's mother was an enslaved housekeeper named Mary Jane Yunker, and his father was an enslaved wheat farmer and musician named Andrew Jackson Swan. The Civil War was very difficult for them. They lived in Hancock, Maryland, which was a union-held town, but it straddled the Mason-Dixon line. Mm. So there was plenty of people who lived there who saved their loyalty for the Confederate South. What a weird place to live. I know, right? Like, literally, you talk about a divided nation and 
brother against brother and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like literally, there's you know, Berlin, there's a wall right through the middle of your town. Yeah. So soldiers would come in and they would eat or destroy crops in this town, making food very scarce. Uh, but the family still celebrated Christmas and other holidays together. And Gerard Joseph writes, quote, from these early experiences, Swan learned the importance of unity, self-sacrifice, and the pursuit of joy in the face of oppression, values he would carry into his adult life. And when the war was over and the Swans had their freedom, Swan's parents bought a farm in Hancock, Maryland. Now, William wouldn't have been much more than like seven years old at this time. Mm. But like a lot of formerly enslaved kids, he did not go to school. Right. Instead, he was expected to work as soon as possible and help contribute to the family income. Sure. So likely he did all kinds of like odd jobs and tasks that a kid can make a wage with until he was old enough to get hired as a hotel waiter. Mm. But then in late in 1880, he felt like he wasn't really making enough money doing that. So he took off to Washington, D.C. Now coming from sleepy little Hancock, Washington, D.C., the capital of the whole country. It was just a very exciting, uh, sprawled out, is full of hustle and bustle and opportunity. Sure. So William quickly found a job as a janitor at the Spencerian Business College, and he spent his spare time learning how to read and write. But one of the best things about Washington, D.C. at this time was that there were a lot more men like William there, men who had same-sex attraction. And William was a well-mannered, very charming guy. He made friends everywhere he went. He was just like a natural party planner. Mm -hmm. He saw the need for a gathering space for all these men. So he started holding secret gatherings that he called drags, which Gerard Joseph says might be a corruption of grand rag, which was a term for a masquerade ball. Grand drag, drag, grand, grand drag, drag. drag. I'm a drag, grand drag. I love, love it. I mean, you can totally see how it how it could have come about. So much faster than saying grand rag. I know, grand rag. Who's got time? Who's got the time? And of course, if you say, come on down to my rag, I mean nobody's coming. No one's come to that. Yeah. Now as for the term queen. That came for the annual Emancipation Day Parade. This commemorated the end of slavery in D.C. Gerard Joseph writes, quote, The parade's highlights were the queens of liberty. They were crowned black women who sat atop elaborate, flower-covered floats. The grace and beauty of these women, who personified African Americans' newfound freedom, made a deep impression on Swan, who took the title Queen among his friends. Hmm. So, even though female impersonation and costume balls were popular all throughout history, quote, Swan is the earliest documented person to be known as a queen of a cross-dressing ball described by its participants as a drag. Boom. Hence, William was the very first drag queen. I love this because you can just kind of picture him, you know what I mean, meeting these dudes and being like, oh, there's people like me around and we all want to get together. We want to party. We want to do stuff. And... Then seeing this parade and kind of being like, I'm a queen. Yeah. And just kind of saying, y'all, let's come to my drag. I'm the queen. I'm yeah. Come to the House of Swan. Yeah. Time to party. You know, yeah. like you just kind of see it all come together. We can all be queens. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, these drags, all William's parties got him in trouble with the law more than once. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll take a quick break and we'll hear about all that right after this. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. 
I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. So William Dorsey Swan had his first brush with the law in 1882 when he was 24 years old. He was caught stealing books from the Washington Library Company and party supplies like silverware and plates from his employers, who were white educators named Henry and Sarah Spencer. They ran the college that he worked at. Mm. William pleaded guilty to petty larceny. He was sentenced to six months in prison for stealing the books and one month for the silverware. But the Spencers, along with the sentencing judge and the assistant U.S. attorney, asked Chester A. Arthur for a presidential pardon for oh. Swan. Um, they said he sent his family everything he could spare from his wages oh. and that he was, quote, free from vice, industrious, refined in his habits and associations, gentle in his disposition, courteous in his bearing. And they also said, you know, he stole books. He was just trying to become better educated. Mm -hmm. Why should you punish him for that? Um, and they said that the college would be happy to provide him lifetime employment as their janitor. Okay, okay. So these, like, the Spencers were, like, 100% on board with William Swan. <laughs> right, but I'm like, if the Spencers, the judge, and the assistant attorney okay. were all coming to his defense, who pressed charges in the first place? Great question. Was it just like... Oh, we caught him, so we have to go through this rigmarole, but we'll try and undo the damage. I don't know. And it's it's actually not recorded if he ever got the pardon mm. um, or if he served his full sentence or if they just kind of let him out after a couple months or right. something. It's not it's not recorded anywhere. Huh. 
Um, but it does speak to his character that the Spencers were yeah. like, nah, this guy's great. What are you yeah. talking about? I'm sure they didn't know to what use the silverware was being put, <laughs> <You're> <laughs> perhaps. Right. But, you know, they were basically like, let him be. You know what I mean? So at anyway, at some point he was out of jail and he was throwing parties again because, you know, Swan's not going to be kept down by a little petty larceny charge. And of course, these parties are underground. They're invitation only. Um, usually invitations were issued at places like the YMCA. Mm-hmm. And often the location would be withheld or changed at the last minute to avoid the possibility of being raided by the cops. Right. So it's kind of a whisper campaign like, mm-hmm. hey, hey, psst, what are you doing tonight? Right. You got to come down to 4th and Broadway, except it's not going to be. We'll text you at the real location What's five minutes before it starts. <laughs> it's where I write it down in text on a sheet of paper, and I'm going to tie it to a pigeon. Ah. And then uh, good luck after that, because <laughs> these are not trained pigeons. I hope it flies to you. Yeah. So these parties included dinner and dancing, including the cakewalk. Hey. Uh, if you're a regular listener, you might remember from our episode about Aida and George Walker that the cakewalk was this dance that was very popular during slavery, but it was all about style. You know, it was the best moves, the funniest, the most ostentatious, whatever, just like, you know, come out here on the dance floor and do something wild. Yeah, show me what you got. Yeah, exactly. And then the winner of this dance would get a cake as a prize. So the moves involved in a cakewalk would eventually be the inspiration for voguing. So William and his guests, they were dancing, they're dining, they're drinking all together regularly at these secret parties. And they would all wear, as the Washington critic put it in 1887, quote, low neck and short sleeve silk dresses, several of them with trains. They all wore corsets, bustles, long hose and slippers, and everything that goes to make a female's dress complete. That's right. They had it all. Mm-hmm. Accessories and everything. Right. They would wear wigs. Like, they were really going for it. They wanted to look the best. Mm-hmm. Some of the guests included Felix Hall and Pierce Lafayette, who were the first documented same-sex enslaved couple. William had been friends with these men for a long time, and at this point in the story, he and Pierce were actually lovers. We're not sure if Felix was still in the mix or not, and there's not much recorded about him, but we can tell you a little bit about Pierce. Yes, Pierce Lafayette had been enslaved in Georgia by none other than Alexander H. Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederate States of America. Oh, wow. So sort of close to the seat of power, I guess you could say. Um, Stevens's legacy is basically that he gave a big speech in 1861, straight up saying, quote, Our new government, its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. Wow. Pretty explicit. This wow. is where this is when I read some shit, and I'm like, people who try to tell me that it wasn't about slavery, I just don't understand. Oh my how god, <laughs> this Yo, is, it's very clearly about slavery. They kept saying it <laughs> over and over again. Over it was and not over a again. secret. They were very proud of it. In <laughs> fact, <laughs> even though they agreed on slavery, Alexander Stevens and the Confederate president Jefferson Davis did not get along. Otherwise. And in 1864, Stevens gave another famous speech in Milledgeville, Georgia, which I didn't know this, but that was the capital of the Confederacy. Oh, did you know that? I <laughs> uh, did not. If I ever was told it, I definitely forgot it. Yeah. Milledgeville. 
I like that the former capital of the Confederacy is now Milledgeville, Georgia. I know, right? You go to Milledgeville and you're like, oh, oh this, this is this? Is it, this? Huh? No offense to people who live in Milledgeville. No, we know some lovely uh, people from Milledgeville. So from true. Milledgeville. From? They left. <laughs> I don't know anyone who currently lives <laughs> in Milledgeville. I'm sure there's people still living in yes. Milledgeville who are cool. So, yeah, he's in Milledgeville and he's ranting in this speech in 1864 that it was just against white liberty to conscript soldiers and how dare you draft me into the army and so on. And he was advocating for policies that would lead to peace with the North, but without, you know, giving up the slavery. Right. (laughs) So anyway, just kind of going on and on about how it's very important for white people to feel free and have personal freedom. So a quick irony. And while he was giving this speech, according to the New York Times, Pierce decided to grab a little liberty for himself. And he, quote, escaped to the Union lines and placed himself in the service of a cavalry unit commanded by General Joseph Wheeler. This guy's given his big speech and <laughs> Pierce just slipped out. He's like, see you Bye. later, boss. Have a good speech. Bye. <laughs> Take my ass wow. to the Union line and be like, how can I help you? Well, Pierce escaping apparently really shocked Alexander Stevens, who, as we said, (laughs) had given his whole big cornerstone speech all about how, as the New York Times put it, quote, the unquestioning obedience he expected from Pierce and his other 30 odd slaves was a function of their racial deficiencies and white superiority, he insisted, had been vindicated by modern science. (laughs) This guy's literally like, well, all of the people I enslaved will inherently be obedient because scientifically I am superior to them. And then they ran off on him. Right. Amazing. And, well, and he and that they liked it that way. Yeah. I think he also had a little bit of that where he's like, not only is it, it's natural for them. Yeah. So they prefer it. They're safer and happier when they're enslaved by me and told what to do. Unbelievable. And then Pierce is like, let me prove you wrong right fast. Yeah. <laughs> and that he's so taken about, oh, what? What? I thought you liked this. The New York Times says that Pierce leaving haunted Stevens in late 1865 after the war was over and Stevens was serving a five month jail sentence awaiting a possible trial for treason against the United States because of the treason. Because of the, you know, because of the treason. (laughs) He, quote, recorded several dreams of his once trusted servants. In one of the most vivid, he imagined the life that a wayward Pierce would be living beyond his master's control. Oh, Lord, what was that dream? Oh, my God. I mean, you know, they don't give us the details, but... He's starving in the streets. He's living in a ditch somewhere. (laughs) He could be safe and comfortable. Well, Pierce and Stevens did cross paths again. Stevens, who did not get a prison sentence for treason, actually, he was elected to the House of Representatives (laughs) in 1873, Uh which... I'm sorry, the guy who was the vice president of the Confederacy later got elected to the House of Representatives. All all in the name of healing, I'm sure. Well, you know, it just goes to show you that the end of the Civil War did not make everyone suddenly change their minds. Oh, no, not even a little. Yep. Well, Stevens did use his influence to help get Pierce a civil service appointment at the Interior Department. Stevens had apparently tried to train Pierce to be a trusted dependent and assistant to him. And now that he was his own man, as New York Times writes, quote, Stevens Southern mastery was replaced by a routine act of political patronage. This guy 
Makes no sense. This guy previously enslaved this man, <laughs> told him, oh, you like it here because right. genetically I'm superior to you. When he escaped, he was shocked and said, well, let me get you a job in government then. That, I mean, it must be really hard to like hold all this weird shit together where you're like, this person's inferior to me, but they're not so inferior that he can't be a trusted assistant to me. Right. But he definitely prefers that to like leaving, letting, you know, living his own life and doing whatever he wants. <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, it... But now he does want to do whatever he wants. Well, I guess he's still a smart guy. I'll go ahead and help him <laughs> get this job. Why didn't he just ever once be like, I don't know, maybe some black people are as smart as white people and some white people are as dumb as anybody else like you know i don't know why do you, you can't see at all that there's it's just a brain that's what's so frustrating about it because clearly this whole time he thought oh you are good enough to be my assistant i just don't want to pay you or treat you like a person well but now that i have to i guess i'll just take you into the same job but I'll, i guess i'll pay you a little bit of money this time and yeah. I, I won't make you sleep in a barn outside you know like it, it's, it just goes to show people like stevens who knew all along that mm -hmm. these are human beings and, and but convince themselves they weren't. It, I, I'm like, just like your brain don't work. You no. know what I mean? Your brain's yeah. broken. Yeah. Well, it was at Pierce's elegant two story house in Hancock, Maryland, that William was throwing another one of his drag balls in 1887 and it got busted up by the cops. Six men were arrested. As Gerard Joseph writes, quote, newspapers described several black men wearing bewitching fascinators, silk sacks, or cashmere dresses while en route to balls. Um, they also printed the names of the men arrested. So, again, very important to point out. These men were risking everything to go to this party. You know, the, they could lose their reputation, their livelihood, their freedom, their friendships. If they were discovered, they were the center of moral panic and scorn. It sounds like just a little party, but it's clearly more important than that. And in the 1887 raid, according to Joseph, this was, quote, the first time the wider world learned of Swan and the motley group of messengers, butlers, coachmen, and cooks. Mm. So now that the group was more widely known, of course, everyone had their little hot take, just like today, even though we don't right. have, you know, they didn't have Twitter. They still wrote some dumb shit. Mm -hmm. And of course, they didn't have the terms that we have today, gender nonconforming, transgender. They didn't even have the term cross-dressing, really. Yet. Right. So one researcher named Dr. Charles Hamilton Hughes described them in an 1893 medical journal as, quote, an organization of colored erotopaths. And a lecherous gang of sexual perverts. Sounds like a great time to me. <laughs> quite frankly. I, again, these guys are funny to me because they're just so freaked out by a skirt. Yeah. You know, it's the same people who we, we're not even talking about women wearing pants, which, of right. course, we know women were arrested for wearing pants even further than men were arrested for wearing dresses. Yeah. But like. They're so upset when you wear a different type of clothing than they think your gender should be wearing. Oh it's God. like they think the whole world's falling apart and it's really not worth all that stress. <laughs> right. They're and, so concerned about right. it. Right. And most of it is all comes down to their this idea in their heads that it's something sexual. Right. As if that's the most horrific thing that ever happened in the world. That like, too. The yeah. thing that literally has been happening since before any other human activity <laughs> happened. Literally S anything literally. else before we did Anything else that we're doing today, we were having sex with each other. Yeah. But it wasn't until 1888, during a raid, when William would really cement his place in queer history. It was his 30th birthday party, and William was wearing, quote, a gorgeous dress of cream-colored satin. 
Now, likely this dress was made by William's younger brother, Daniel J. Swan, who was a tailor, and Daniel made women's clothing for himself and several other people in their community. At least two of William's brothers regularly attended his parties. Anyway, this party was going great, fabulous ball, lots of people dancing, looking wonderful, I'm sure, when suddenly the cops showed up and they barged in. Now, William Dorsey Swan, who was not a small man, he charged right up the officers and he fought them at the door. Yes! Boldly telling one officer, quote, you is no gentleman. <gasps> How dare you, sir? <laughs> I love it. I wish you would take a glove off and like smack him <laughs> in the face. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, he's up there. He's in this beautiful cream dress and he's fighting off, mm-hmm. you know, a whole, whole brigade of cops at the door. Gotta be. And he's holding them off long enough that 17 of his guests were able to escape. Wow. But in the process, William's dress was torn to shreds, Mm -hmm. and he, along with 12 others, were arrested. Gerard Joseph points out that his choice to resist, quote, rather than submit passively to his arrest, marks one of the earliest known instances of violent resistance in the name of gay rights. Hell yes. Amazing. Yeah. I love that he got so mad. You know, yeah. sometimes anger is really, really valuable emotion. And, you know, and it's when just they're like, don't treat me like this. Oh, no. I'm and when done. Coming in with violence uh-huh. to knock you down and make you stop, you know, living your own free life. Right. On my private property or someone's right. private property. Right. Like, what is what's it to you? But William did not stop there. We will tell you all about his clash with Grover Cleveland right after these words. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast 
is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Welcome back, everybody. So after that bust up in 1888, that that kind of public airing of their private parties made it a lot harder to throw these drag balls. Yeah. But William still held them anyway. He's like, I'm going to keep partying. (laughs) And he had another one get busted up in 1896. This time, he was convicted of keeping a disorderly house. Oh. Which was a euphemism for running a brothel. Oh, okay. Because we keep a disorderly house. I know. I was like, ooh. I would get in big trouble for that (laughs) if that was a crime. Now, there's no evidence whatsoever that William Dorsey Swan ran a brothel or engaged in sex work at all. But, you know, he had gay parties. So people like Hughes condemned these balls as, quote, orgies of lascivious debauchery beyond pen power of description. And the prosecutor at the trial even said that it was just a punishment for Swan's sexual relationships with other men and his, quote, evil example in the community. Wow. So he even straight up was like, yeah, we know it's bogus, but we just want to get you for something. Yep. At the trial, Swan was sentenced to 10 months in jail, with the judge lamenting that he couldn't make it 10 years and saying, quote, I would like to send you where you would never again see a man's face and would then like to rid the city of all other disreputable persons of the same kind. Wow. Jeez, like these guys, they're so full-throated with this shit. Right. It's insane. And it kind of shows you how fine it was to be shitty to people different than awful, you. awful, awful. Um, because it was just so in your face. Well, then I'm like, what What anger and hatred is so permeating you yeah. that you're given an opportunity to unleash it and you just let it out in the most horrible way you can? I know. Right? Ugh. Like, what's, uh, is everything okay at home? For real. Judge? This is what you care about with this level of vitriol? Like, right. this? Of right. all things going on in 1896, this is what you're concerned with? Hey, what do you hate most in the world? Well, when people enjoy their time together, it really makes me mad. Ooh, I hate parties with music. <sighs> like, Jesus. Maybe the judge never got invited to a party. Well, He was just like, if I can't party, no one can. <laughs> <laughs> so speculation station, this judge was just a complete loser <laughs> who didn't know how to make friends. I'm, I'm satisfied with that speculation station. Right. I think we can just write that down in the history books. Now, I didn't get invited to a lot of parties. Oh, so no, no offense to my younger self. Mm. You were a complete loser who didn't know how to make friends. But that doesn't make you a bad person. I didn't get invited to a lot of parties either. <laughs> That's why we throw our own now. We throw our own now. <laughs> You're all invited. Well, after this sentencing and this incredibly rude comment by the judge, mm-hmm. William, of course, was furious. Three months into serving his sentence, he filed a petition for a presidential pardon, saying, according to Natisha Curry, who's the archive specialist at the National Archives in Maryland, that, quote, 
he was a respectable hard worker with a long record of continuous employment and that the sentence was severe to the crime and that if released, he would live a proper and law-abiding life. And that, that to me just goes to show how much work William had to do to hold his tongue, right? Oh my God. And say like, I, I can't believe how I've been treated, but mm-hmm. let me just explain to you why I will continue to be a good, hardworking citizen you know, who contributes and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I'm sure in his heart and mind, he was screaming some pretty, it's a lot of vitriol of his own. I've got some things yeah. I would say. Like, I don't know. I'd be saying a lot of ill-advised things, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> let's say. Well, William's petition was signed by 30 of his friends and allies, possibly some who were part of the drag or queer community. But the U.S. attorney, A.A. A. Bernie, scoffed at it, saying, quote, The prisoner was in fact convicted of the most horrible and disgusting offenses known to the law. An offense so disgusting that it is unnamed. Jeez, Bernie. Unnamed? He was wearing a dress. I know. He's having a party. I, I mean, I'm assuming he's talking about the actual, like, gay sex that they're really objecting to, but, like, Bro. And yeah, William Swan was like, I'm looking at other people who got probably for real the charge of keeping a disorderly house and they didn't get 10 months in jail. They got much shorter sentences. So even if I was, you know, so this guy's like, but it's worse that you did it. Yeah. It's worse that it was a bunch of men, you know? He's like, hey, I've got a friend whose former enslaver (laughs) was the vice president of the treasonous confederacy and he is now a representative for the u.s government (laughs) meanwhile i had a party with some men in dresses and i have to go to jail for you wish 10 years well alexander stevens is a (laughs) well he's a white he's a white man with uh, some property and money and so (laughs) you see it's different well anyway this petition made its way to the desk of the president grover cleveland grover cleveland now he took his time answering it perhaps read it in (laughs) non-consecutive sessions (laughs) and while it was still pending review William's friends started calling Bernie's office because they were worried about William's health. Mm -hmm. Now, everything had been fine when he got a doctor's checkup when he entered the jail in March. But then the same doctor in July diagnosed William with heart disease that he said was made worse by the prison conditions. So the friends are like, listen, he's like his life is endangered because of this prison sentence. Isn't there some way you could commute it? But Grover Cleveland denied the pardon on July 29th, 1896. Uh, Natisha Curry writes that he, quote, stated in summary that the implications of his health were not sufficient to counter the character of his offense. So basically was like, go ahead and die in jail. But even though he was unsuccessful, Channing Gerard Joseph points out that this makes Swan, quote, the earliest recorded American to take specific legal and political steps to defend the queer community's right to gather without the threat of criminalization, suppression or police violence. Oh, wow. Another first. Another first. So really, really like one of the first queer rights activists. Yeah. He was the first to have violently resist arrest and the first to try political means. Right. um, To to kind of his piece you know in the late 1800s and it's so interesting to look at that and think about 
uh, you know, the Stonewall riots yes. or something like that. And also, it's really disheartening to look at this and yeah. say, well, this was 130 years ago. I know. And here we are. Well, and like, I know I'm feeling like real turned up about it myself because uh-huh. there's bills currently in legislation that are trying to outlaw cross-dressing. Yep. And it's they're very anti-trans. They're specifically, right. I think, targeting trans youth yep. or anyone, adults as well. But, I mean, essentially, they're writing it like you can't wear pants. Men can't wear tights. You know, yeah. like, it, it's, like, insane to me to, to, one, tell me that I live in a free country and that I can't wear pants. Like, I just think that's fucking stupid. Yeah. So, anyway, it's like, as you say, we're looking at a very, very early on and then 1969 and then still now, still, still arguing about this. Still. Just makes me want to strangle. It's <laughs> like... Can we not move on? Speaking of click, fast forwarding. Uh, right. <laughs> Can I not fast forward through this shitty fascist part, please? Because Ugh. we already know how this goes. Uh, fast All forward right. or rewind and then just record over. Okay. I, that works too. <laughs> I'm into it. How much can this click remote do? I never saw a click. <laughs> can it change reality? <laughs> can I just like implant new memories in people's brains right. and make them less shitty, please? Oh my God. I don't know. I know I'm like going on and on, but it just makes me mad because it just seems like such a simple freedom, a normal yeah. of what, bo- what you put on your body. And yep. I don't know. I just don't care. Walk yep. around in a dress. Well, when he got out of prison... Swan was totally done with Washington, D.C., and he moved back home to Hancock, and he retired from the drag scene after about 1900. But his brother, Daniel, continued the parties, and he continued providing costumes for the drag community until his death in 1954. He dressed notable black D.C. drag queens like Alden Garrison and Mother Louis Diggs. Williams' drag balls were organized as House of Swan, Mm -hmm. with mothers or more experienced performers mentoring the younger ones. And today, the modern ballroom scene maintains this same format. You have your houses, the mothers, the queens, even a lot of the language remains. Gerard Joseph writes, quote, Strikingly, descriptions of balls from the 1930s are sprinkled with phrases like strike a pose, sachet across the floor, and vogue. The same terms that are heard today on TV shows like RuPaul's Drag Race or Pose. Mm, that's so fun that they didn't change. Why yeah. would they? Yeah, Sashay great. across the floor? Right. What else do you need? <laughs> Look, Is there a better way to say that? You no. can hop in a time machine and go to back many, many decades and say Vogue and, and people know what you mean. They will start to Vogue, they will start for to vogue. you. Now, William Dorsey Swan died in 1925. And this was the same year and around this era when... The queer culture started to really be linked intrinsically to drag, mm-hmm. and they would use slurs against queer people to describe some of these uh, events as well, like Hamilton Lodge Oddfellows Ball, yeah. uh, which, you know, won't even need to say what they called that here. But it, it's it's the point in time at which the idea of cross-dressing, you mm-hmm. know, of putting on clothes of the uh, of a different gender was associated with being gay or queer. Yes, having yeah. same-sex attraction, which right. is not, as we pointed out at the top of the episode, was not true. For a very originally. long time. Yeah. Right. It was just like, oh, you specialize in female performance. And not just that they associated those two things together, but they did so pejoratively. Of course. Right? Yeah, like yes. it was a negative. Yeah. As opposed to being an extreme positive, because <laughs> no one does it as well. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and after his death, authorities burned... 
William Swan's home and wow. everything in it. Man. I don't know what the point of that was, except to be shitty. Yeah, right? Um, so, unfortunately, there are no photos of William Swan. We can't look at any of his personal papers. We don't know anything about him beyond uh, basically what's in this episode. Because Channing Gerard Joseph is uh, also, uh, I guess, an ex-drag queen. And he was, like, just looking through clippings one day. And he found this newspaper clipping that said 13 uh, Negroes were arrested outside this party and they were all dressed in women's clothing. And wow. he was like, what's this? And he ends up like busting this whole story open. Wow. So big ups to Channing Gerard Joseph. Yes, seriously. Um, he's also writing a nonfiction book called The House of Swan, where slaves become queens. Okay. Um, so if when whenever that comes out, going to try yeah, to read that because I'm sure it's going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> also part of William Swan's legacy. This is pretty great. There's a road in D.C. called Swan Street. And for a very long time, they were like, oh, it's named for the slave owner whose name was Thomas Swan. Mm. But in 2022, they adopted a resolution to say, nope, it's named for William Dorsey Swan. OK. The first drag queen, the first LGBT rights activist who may have been born a slave, but damn it, he didn't let anybody tell him what to do. Hell yeah. And I love that. They was like, you know what? Fuck that guy. <laughs> make it make it. Be about this guy. Yeah, that's amazing. We want you to learn about him instead. <laughs> ah, that's awesome. Isn't that a crazy story? I love it. I'm very fascinated. I mean, this is kind of history. Well, exactly what's happening. I, I right. learn about this as an adult, and I'm like, where was this all my life? Right. You know, I mean, I've I've been seeing drag shows since probably high school. Yes. Definitely college, and uh, have known a little bit about the history, like Stonewall and things like that, but. But n never. No one. I mean, like you said, this history has been kind of lost. So I'm yeah. glad that uh, Channing Gerard Joseph is putting it together because it seems like something kind of important to know. I know. And what a great character and yes. stuff. I mean, he also points out he's like, it's really I mean, it sucks that they got arrested and right. their names printed in the newspaper because it made them less safe yeah. in their time and in their space. And, you know, it it just wasn't great. Yeah. On the other hand, he's like, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't know they existed at all. Wow. So in okay. a way, I'm very grateful for the record of them being arrested and having to ask for these pardons, because otherwise right. they would be lost to history completely. We wouldn't have any idea about anything wow. about them. So and then even that, you know, you can see someone reading the very same article and going, oh, there's a place I can go and party with guys like me. Okay, I'm gonna try to get to the YMCA. Yeah, <laughs> right. Find out right. the address. <laughs> get wow. on the get on the the Discord or whatever I gotta do. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, it's just sort of that terrible double edged sword where you're you're like he's like I, if it weren't for this we wouldn't know if they hadn't done that it wouldn't have been as shitty for them. I don't know which one I'd rather get rid of. So you hear that everyone? Diana is advocating to arrest marginalized no! people so that. <laughs> We can have a record of their story later. Don't say that. <laughs> I would never. No, no. I would say the opposite, actually. Hey, everybody out there, you know, every time you cause a fuss about someone that you don't like and you want to marginalize them, if you want to oppress them, you know, you might be building up their own case against you. You might be, hmm. you know, history's not going to look kindly on you and they're going to see what you were doing to people. And hopefully the story will change later on. Or you could just not treat people shitty to begin with. Right. Just stop giving a fuck if someone is wearing a skirt or whatever. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? I'm going to measure 
from the beginning to the end of my life. Okay. And uh, at the, I'll, I'll look back, and there's two versions. Mm-hmm. One where I really gave a shit about people and about men wearing dresses mm-hmm. or whatever. Yes. And one where I don't. And I guarantee you, at the end of those two lives, everything's the same except that I probably had more and better friends in the one where I wasn't an asshole. Okay, for real. <laughs> this is, I'm like, do you need a hobby? Do we need to find you a volunteer job, like cleaning up some trash somewhere so you can do something useful? That's because crazy. this energy you're putting into this dumb shit. Oh, what a waste. It's just such a waste. Exactly. It's such a waste. I'm like, you have so much drive, yeah. so much emotion and passion. Can you not like put it? Somewhere that's valuable. (laughs) Well, you're embarrassing yourself, you know, is a big part of it, too. Yeah. Well, I'm embarrassed for you. Yeah. Because you're dumb. Dumb with a B. That's when extra B B at the end. That's when the B can't stay silent. (laughs) (laughs) It has to speak up. And you're a B who can't stay (laughs) silent. That's right. The B can't stay silent. Well, anyway, I want to thank Les Kirkendall for a beautiful performance of this. Yeah. And if you do get a chance to see The Real Black Swan, he does perform it several different places around the country. Yeah. He might do uh, even an online version. It's really, really great show. He kind of like weaves his own life in with William Dorsey Swan, and it's really great. That's so cool. And uh, so I just loved it, and I was really excited to be introduced to this guy. So thank you, Les Kirkendall. And I hope that you liked this story as much as we did. Yeah. You know we want to hear from you. Our email address is radicromance at gmail.com. That's right. Or find us online on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Oh Great, It's Eli. And I'm Diana Mate Boom. The show is at Ridic Romance on those platforms and Ridiculous Romance on TikTok. Yes. And you are awesome. Thank you for spending time with us today. Yeah. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.